I do hope we can have a season of questions. Abraham Joshua Heschel famously said that questions bring us closer to God than answers do. And um, uh, this is obvious to us as Jews, we know this, but it's a great time to, uh, to return to the questions. In that spirit, let's go to a poll. We have a little poll of questions here. I love most about Pesach, interpreting the Haggadah all night or the food, especially when someone else cooks it, right? Or the songs. Or lastly, Pesach is pure anxiety for me. Cross out the first three options. <laughs> okay, so make your choice here. Give you a few seconds to make your choice in the poll. Okay, my friend Eddie, let's see the results. 25% want to interpret the Haggadah all night. 25% love the food. And 38% love the songs. Amazing. That's the winner. And Pesach is pure anxiety, 13%. Given the number of people in the room, I'm guessing 13% was one of you, only one of you. Oh, is that you, Eileen? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, does anybody want to out themselves? Who, who is, uh, <laughs> you don't have to out yourself. Okay, great. No, it was me, Rabbi. Oh, Eric, Eric, okay. Um, I love Pesach, but I feel like Pesach is the time where there is more stress and anxiety to, you know, to kosher your kitchen and put a Seder out and get all the ingredients. I feel that is more work than, than most of the Jewish, uh, you know, yearly psych, uh, holidays. I hear it. I hear it. Yes. I agree with Eric. It's anxiety provoking, but I love the song. <laughs> I'm all for the food. Yeah, great. Really, there's no holiday we have that is as demanding um, traditionally of cooking and of cleaning and of hosting um, and of preparing ideas. So maybe you have mastered it and it's not difficult for you, or you go out or you have some easy way. Or as they say, the Pesach cruise. Everybody on the Pesach cruise? I don't, I don't know if anybody here. <laughs> you want to spend uh, $100,000 and you can go on a Pesach Galat Kosher cruise. <laughs> okay, friends. 36, Malacha 36. Here we go. Extinguishing, Mechaber, extinguishing a light constructively. Think about that. Extinguishing constructively is the 36th Malacha, known as Mechaber. In the Mishkan, extinguishing was done in order to make charcoal. And so, Flames were not to be doused or even decreased on Shabbat because this um, was representing that malacha from the Mishkan. How are lights relevant to the Jewish experience today? Jewish life is about sparks. With each encounter, we have the chance to ignite or to extinguish, to create and to destroy. This idea is the secret to Jewish resilience. We must never lose hope. On Shabbat, we reflect on extinguishing, on Mechabet, on extinguishing light to be sure we are correcting our path so that we never remove light from the world or add darkness. This starts with the realization of our own inner light. As the distinguished poet Maya Angelou writes, nothing can dim the light that shines from within. Rabbi Shlomo Volby writes, If not for the night, we would not know the stars. During the day, the light of the sun conceals them from our view and limits our focus to earthly life. 
But when the darkness descends upon the earth, new vistas, virtually infinite in reach, are open to us and the stars are revealed. It is the same with a person's inner world. While one is among others, one's focus is entirely on practical matters. One is aware of only the earthly aspect of one's personality. When one withdraws for a time from social interaction, dusk envelops one's earthiness and the heavenly aspect of one's soul is revealed to them. One discovers emotions and inner yearnings for holiness that they never knew existed within them. If one truly desires a glimpse of the heaven within one's soul with its myriad of shining stars, one needs to dim one's earthly activities for a while. Through introspection born of seclusion, they will uncover new worlds of nobility and purity, sanctity and longing for the eternal in the recesses of their soul. So uh, I love this uh, this source here. This is like this is like a permission to be an introvert, a permission to live alone, be alone, um, find the depths of the of the of the reaches of one's soul through isolation. And I love this analogy of the soul in isolation in relationship to the stars at night. That you have to remove the the other lights in order to reach those stars. You have to kind of go to that place of darkness, if you will. So too, you have to remove the noise and um, uh, and stimulation of, of external externalities in order for the soul to kind of reach its, its, its brightest light. Some of you might disagree. You say, no, my soul is brightest in community or in interaction or in sociability. Um, and his suggestion is um, that it may be true, but there is some degree of the heavenly dimension of the self that can only be um, found or found most brightly in that isolation. So that's an interesting reflection on light and darkness and how we receive light from others and how our own light shines most brightly when we are alone. It is our obligation to see our dignity and keep our flames alight and burning. Rabbi Israel of Rizim taught. Sorry for the delay. Oh, we don't have that source there. Let's go back. Rabbi Israel of Rizim taught when a person walks through a forest on a dark night and meets up with another person who has a lantern, they no longer grope and stumble in the dark. But at the crossroads, they part, and one without a light must again find their way in the darkness. If a person carries their own light, they need to not be afraid of anything. So it's interesting, friends. I have, I have told this story before, but with the opposite message. The way the Hasidic story normally goes is two people walk in the forest, and they find each other in the dark. And they're thrilled to find each other, because now together they can navigate the dark. Rabbi Yisrael of Rizim tells the story the opposite. He says, you're walking with someone in the forest. You should be afraid walking with them because how will you navigate when you're alone? And ultimately, if you're carrying your own light, you will be, a, a, you will be okay when you're alone, which is an interesting, different message. It's a message of self-dependence rather than of interdependence. Of course, both of those messages are true and powerful, that we should live in an interdependent codependent world where we rely upon each other's light. And yet Rav Yisrael of Rishon is saying something similar to what Rabbi Wolby just, Wolby just said, which is that if we cultivate our own light, then we need not um, fear our isolation because we can rely upon our own light. Similar to what Maya Angelou wrote, nothing can dim the light that shines from within, and thus we can always turn inwards. Yes, we live in society and in community. Yes, we take care of each other and sometimes have to do the difficult work to light one another up. But we also must learn how to avoid extinguishing our own flames and how to carry our own lamps as best as possible. On this point, we ponder the experience of mentorship from great people. We want to receive their light, strength, and inspiration. But we also want to be sure not to lose our own unique light in that process. Rabbi Michael Rosen, if you ever went to the Yakar Minyan in Jerusalem, he was the rabbi of that interesting Minyan. Um, and he wrote a book on Rav Sim Chabana. And here he reflects on, on an idea from Rav Sim Chabana. Sorry, our slides are moving a little bit slow today. Rabbi, that's not on the slide. Oh, there's a slide problem. 
Yeah, sorry for the tech difficulty there. There is another Kabbalistic legend. Oh, oh, Eddie, I see what you're saying. That, that it wasn't a tech difficulty. Actually, that slide did, it somehow got dropped. Okay, no problem. So here's what, here's what Rabbi Michael Rosen says of uh, quoting Rabbi Simchavon. He also taught that it was forbidden to extinguish the light of one's own inner world to confirm to the charisma of a tzaddik. Just as intellectual acumen requires independent judgment and a sense of autonomy, so too, he argued, in matters of emotion and spirit, one could only make contact if one were truly present, if one took responsibility for oneself, even at the moment of encounter with the tzaddik. So this is very interesting what Rav Simchavani was saying. Sorry for the distracting slide here. He's saying that some, some Hasidim some would say, I'm encountering a tzaddik, I'm going to channel their mentorship, their righteousness, their light. But he says that only works if someone is taking responsibility for their own inner light in the process. In that spirit, indeed, if, even if while each of us has our own unique talents, gifts, stories, and light, there's something universal and even primordial about the light we share as well. Now we're on this slide. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner writes, based on this book, this is a fascinating idea here. There's another Kabbalistic legend that tells of all humankind descending from another, Adam. So reminder, there's two Adams. Adam Kadmon, the primordial archetypal human, which the Kabbalah is careful to distinguish from Adam Harishon, the first mythic person of the garden. Lest the distinction between humans and God be confused. It is nevertheless in, intimated. The primordial Adam was some kind of giant who contained within them the souls of us all. After the, the fall, they were scattered about the universe like sparks. They are never extinguished. There are only so many of them. They are, they are each an eternal life force that gives life to one creature after another in one generation after another. And each of them began in the same Adam Kadmon the same archetype, uh, archetypic human, the same primordial giant. And at the end, they will return once again to their same ancient unity. So friends, this is very interesting. The idea of the conflation between the primordial human and the first human. Um, and Lawrence Kushner explains how the sparks of the primordial, that is to say the human uh, archetype that existed before creation, and the relationship between the first uh, paradigm of the human stamp in this world and the relationship between those two. Uh, Rabbi Biller, it sounds like one is forbidden to extinguish one's own light, which you might be tempted, which you might be tempted to do out of humility in the face of another tzaddik who is a great light. Yes, based on that Rabbi Simchabanim, you might say, I'm gonna extinguish my light in front of this great person in fact, it's the opposite. You can only receive the great light of this great person if you are allowing your own light to shine in its fullness. This is also an interesting way to think about the death of a loved one or the death of a great person, that we might feel like light has been extinguished from the world, but actually we can receive the light of that, of that extinguished soul of the parent or loved one or great person in the world only by allowing our light to shine more greatly thus receiving the sparks of holiness, the sparks of love from the deceased. While tapping into that energy and power, we also remember that each of us has the own, our own unique calling. The Baal Shem Tov taught, it is incumbent upon each person to pursue that particular aspect of healing of the world that is meant for their soul alone. Each of us is given a soul power, right, of where we can bring Tikkun into the world, the Baal Shem Tov teaches, and that is only for us to do it. No one else can bring the healing to the world that our soul is called to do, the Baal Shem Tov says. In addition to our human life that is universal and our individual life that is personal, there's a third dimension that is the shared Jewish life, right? Once again, universal life that all humanity shares, personal life that only we as an individual can share, and then Jewish life, which is particularistic. Rabbi Yosef Stern writes here, these two categories, the repentant Jew and the constantly righteous one, are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Rather, aspects of both exist in each of us. Just to, just to hash that out a little more. There is a part of our soul that is perfect, 
It is our inner life. It is godly. It doesn't need to be changed or fixed. It is our godly self. It is perfect. Then there's the part of our soul that always needs repair. The part of our soul that is the repentant. We can speak more kindly. We can give more charity. We can lift up other people's more. We can give more with our time uh, and our energy. We can, we can repair ourselves in the world. We are imperfect. We are broken paradoxically at the same time as being perfect and whole. He continues, rather aspects of both exist in each of us. On the one hand, all of us are guilty of sin to some extent, as Shlomo HaMelech says, for no person is so righteous in the earth that, he, that they do only good and do not sin. Everyone sins. Yet no matter how far one strays, there exists in every Jew. Here he's talking again about the Jewish dimension of the soul. A sincere love to the creator and a spark of Jewishness that is never extinguished. Right? This is called the Pintalayid. As the prophet Yeshayahu, the prophet Isaiah writes, your people are all righteous. Thus, every Jew is in one respect totally righteous and that his Pintalayid never ceases to flicker. On the other hand, we all err and are in dire need of tshuva, repentance. Consequently, both the sukkah's canopy of peace for the return to Judaism and Shabbos, shelter for the righteous are equally necessary. Okay, Shabbos, shelter, perfect. The enclosure, the encapture of, the, of, of Shabbat um, and the sukkah, the imperfect walls of the sukkah. So that, that's an interesting way to think of the soul, my friends. The Shabbos soul and the Sukkah soul. The Sukkah soul, the walls are incomplete. They're flimsy. It's ready to get blown over by the wind. And the Shabbos shelter of peace, that is whole. We wish Rafua Shalema to Rabbi Harold Kushner. He doesn't travel anymore. He doesn't speak anymore. We wish him a speedy recovery. He writes, so what it means to be a Jew is to continue to play music even when the lights go out. Here's how Rabbi Kushner explains this point so beautifully, how he illustrates this. In 2003, memories of 9-11, fresh in many people's minds. Dr. Gordon Livingston's patient was attending a concert of the Baltimore, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. At one point, the lights in the hall went out. Many people wondered if Baltimore had been attacked, but the orchestra kept playing in the dark sitting in the dark, unable to see the conductor or even their scores. The musicians played on flawlessly. The ovation at the end of the piece was especially heartfelt. We too, in a time when darkness threatens to envelop us, can do nothing more helpful or more courageous than to ignore the darkness and go on playing. I love this, friends. When we feel a challenge to our resilience, we feel the world darker, we feel that challenge. The Wi-Fi goes down. The electricity goes out. The power is off, right? Your car is not working. Okay, and then, of course, more extreme examples. But something that feels like, oh, how am I going to navigate this? Friends, just keep playing. Just keep making music. I know easier said than done. But maybe think of this story, how you look to the conductor. You look to the conductor to guide us, right? Think about the day JFK was shot. Right, many of you remember that day. I remember that day from the womb. In the womb, I remember that day. <laughs> the day that, um, that he was shot. Or think of the day MLK was shot. Or, or things like this. Oh, the conductor, who's, who, is, who, is, who, is, who is conducting? And yet, we have to keep playing the music even while we navigate to get a new conductor in place. When we recite Kiddush Lavana, Sanctifying the New Moon, we reflect on the spot Emmet's Torah, that as brutal empires of the oppressive sun have faded, the small people spiritually interconnected with the humble lunar calendar continues to shine a modest but indissoluble light amidst even the darkest layers of darkness. When we welcome the new moon, we seek the potential of a month, undimmed luminosity, spiritual renewal, reawakened potential and freedom for all. We don't just focus on the light. We know we must enter the darkness, friends. The Kutzka Rebbe teaches on Parshat Yitro. He says, and all the people trembled and stood far away at, the, at Har Sinai. But Moshe entered the dark cloud where God was. Friends, it is easy to be attracted to loud sounds and bright lights. Consider how celebrities 
and the entertainment industry, how they provide something so powerful at drawing us in. But Moshe understood that the deepest treasures in life are found in the quiet, dark, humble spaces of uncertainty. Elijah, Elijah also saw that God is not found in the raging fire, but rather is in the thin, excuse me, the thick, mistranslation here, the thin, quiet, small voice. When we see something that looks perfect, that attracts us with its bright light, we can be wary of the, that perfect broad light, that loud, loud, bright light. And the deeper truths are hidden in the darkness. Light and darkness require one another, of course. Dr. Erica Brown writes, Hopefully you learned with Dr. Erica Brown when she was in town recently. The pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus created a theory called the unity of opposites. A thing can only be properly understood through contrast with its oppositional object. Objects are formed and changed through a confrontation with their opposites. Heat exposed to cold makes an object colder. Something dry exposed to moisture becomes wetter. This is true not only for objects, but for ideas and emotions. Later, philosophers, Hegel in particular, believe that ideas are shaped and sharpened by their dialectical opposites. Light requires darkness in order for one to understand either state. An identity can best be understood through both its similarity and its contrast to an opposing idea. This tension is dynamic. I'm reflecting on how when I put my four-year-old to sleep. Um, she, she, she wants a lot of light, yet my six-year-old wants a lot of dark in the room. And so there's an ongoing tension around how, how, how bright to make the room. And so to navigate me turning off the light, I turn it all the way off um, and wait for my daughter to say, it's too dark in here, before I turn the flashlight on. Because if I start with the flashlight, she says, she says more light, more light. But if I turn it all the way dark, and she says, it's too dark. Then when I turn on the flashlight, she says, ah, thank you, Abba, for the flashlight. And so sometimes we have to make it real dark before we turn the light on. And uh, same so too with my six-year-old. Um, I have to put the flashlight all the way on. And he says, it's too dark. Excuse me, it's too bright. And then I have to hide the flashlight half under the pillow for him to then say, ah, thank you for making it darker. And so, uh, this is also sometimes what we talk about as, uh, uh, you know, under-promise and over-deliver. <laughs> right? um, we have to navigate the expectations that emerge with the light and the dark. Um, if, you, if you see how politicians talk about when COVID will be, restrictions will be lifted, when life will be quote-unquote normal, how do you keep up hopes, but also uh, under-promise and over-deliver? Um, this is an interesting challenge of how we talk about the future. Children can be scared of turning off the lights and adults can be also. Darkness leaves one feeling alone and confused at times. Sigmund Freud, our last quote today, and we're gonna wrap it up. Sigmund Freud wrote about this feeling with a powerful anecdote. For the explanation of the origin of infantile anxiety, I have to think of a three-year-old boy whom I once heard calling out of a dark room. Auntie, speak to me. I'm frightened because it's so dark. His aunt answered him, what good will that do? You can't see me. That doesn't matter, replied the child. If anyone speaks, it gets light. To be sure, when light gets extinguished for someone, we sometimes light up the room for another person with something as simple, simple as comforting, soothing words. On Shabbat, we reflect on the energy we put into the world. Perhaps the greatest legacy we can strive to receive and to pass along is the experience of adding more fuel to our lamps and to the lamps of others. Only with death is our lamp extinguished to some degree. And even then, if we have shared our light with others, our sparks of light continue to shine brightly on this earth for generations. Okay, friends. Mechabe, extinguishing light. I'd love to hear from you. 
Well, yes, Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. Thanks. Yes, um, Shmuley, that was beautiful. And I made a few notes, just comments in the question. So um, I've been reading it, and it applies to me too, that the darkness of this plague we are in has led a lot of people to seek spirituality and look within themselves. And, you know, I've noticed since the beginning of the, of, of the plague, which is probably the best thing for COVID-19 to call it, um, I, I've joined the Institute for Jewish Spiritualities Mindfulness um, Meditation Set. Um, there's about 480 people on Zoom for each one, Monday through Wednesday, and people from Facebook. So I think there's something to be said for that. Um, when you talked about total darkness, it reminded me, if any of you have lived on the Northeastern Seaboard, if you remember when we went into total darkness, there was like a problem with Con Edison and it, it basically wiped out electricity for all of the Northeast, Canada and the US. And um, though it was scary, it was kind of amazing. People were having barbecues in their backyards. I mean, cause this was total darkness. Parties, people were helping each other. Uh, people, cause you know, nothing could go and everything was total darkness. It, it was, it was spooky. Um, also, like it, when you mentioned a bit about um, the, the band playing, it reminds me like right now during all of this, you can go on Zoom and you can hear concerts for free. since so the beginning from like John Pizzarelli, Neil Sedaka was putting one on every day, still putting out a few, Yo-Yo Ma, we've got jazz in Toronto. So th there's something about this that brings people together to shine the light in the darkness. Now, my question for you is, I'm really, really fascinated by the idea of Adam um, Rishon and, and the primordial, Adam Kadmon, and the spiritual sparks. It's, could that be the uh, source for a belief in Gilgulim? I, I actually believe in Gilgulim. I, I believe I've met some and I think I am one, but anyways, um, if, if you could address that. Amazing. Thanks Amazing. for letting me ramble. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. No, not rambling at all, Lauren. Thank you for taking notes and uh, sharing those thoughtful questions. And um, uh, just a few reflections before we go to Cheryl. First on your, uh, uh, and your, your second point about free concerts is, is really beautiful. And thinking about um, when we kind of lower our demands of others um, and we offer something more gentle and more inviting even while we think about sustainability of industries and, and organizations. And I, I think about that a lot, um, how at VBM, uh, we need to ask something of other people to sustain us. Um, and yet, what does it mean to have exceptions? People you know, in poverty or struggling or having different accessibility needs, and things like that. So thank you so much for that. Um, and the spirituality of COVID you know, I think we've seen both. And here, I hope nobody feels judged by this because I, I, I myself have gone in and out of spirituality during COVID. I've seen people who have moved towards a hedonistic mindset. They drink three times as much alcohol as usual. They've gained tons of weight. Um, they uh, are doubling down on Netflix. Again, I'm not being critical. It's understandable why somebody would drink more or gain more weight or spend a lot more time on TV. Um, I, I myself, as I said, have gone in and out of how I've drunk, how I've drank, and how I've eaten and how I've exercised and, and my sense of discipline over COVID. I've, I've had good phases and bad phases, but people, I know a lot of people who are, have really become more hedonistic in a lot of ways. Um, and I know other people who, as you've said, um, have, have really doubled down on the spiritual side, exercise side, meditation side, prayer side, learning side, and, and people who have gone in and out of both, of course. And, um, um, and I do think you're right that um, this has posed, posed uh, a unique opportunity and I think it taps in a little bit into the question of what enables me to, your, to, to go further spiritually. Some people can go further spiritually when they feel safe. They feel their future is clear. They feel financially secure. They feel they're in good relationships. They feel happy and fulfilled. And then they can, long, they can go deeper spiritually, right? I know people like that. And thus COVID is hard for them because certain things have become more challenging and meditate, like pray, like I'm just trying to get by with my mental, basic mental health. I know other people that when they struggle, they go deeper. In a time of mourning, they feel closer to God. In a time of uncertainty, in a time of isolation, they can, they can reach further. 
That's why. And I think communally, we see more of the lateral. The lateral. Who do you see show up at, at, at synagogue weekly? Mostly people who, are, who have some woundedness. Yes, there's the people there for the bar bat mitzvah that week. Yes, there's the people who typically love prayer. But on a tipo, somebody who has, you know, as a synagogue goer, um, you typically on a, on a weekly basis, you find people who are struggling with isolation, people who are there to say Kaddish, people who are there for the year of mourning, people who are, are desperate for connection. Of course, lots of exceptions. But I think we find communally people who are looking for communal spirituality more in their hard times than at a time like things are great. Things are great. They're out there celebrating, having a great time. Things are, are tough. Ooh, I need community. Right now, that's not a, again. It's not a critique of anyone. It's just an interesting insight in kind of why Jewish community struggles in many ways, um, as to when people show up, when they want it, when they feel they need it, when they say, oh, "I don't need it right now. I don't need to be there." And so, um, yeah, and and so spirituality. It's an interesting question for ourselves. Are you someone who connects more to God, who connects more through meditation and prayer, who connects more to Jewish learning at a time when you're struggling um, and you're and you're um, uh, you're having a hard time or someone when you're really at a great place um, or maybe you're both. Okay. And to go to your last point there, I also uh, am very attracted to Gil Gulim, um, Lauren and, Gil, uh, and reincarnation and the idea of Admon Kad, Adam Kadmon, the primordial being um, uh, makes a lot of sense because friends, if you ever think about this idea, we say at Mount Sinai, there were 600,000 men between ages 20 and 60. What, which means there were 3 million Jews. When you, when you include Jewish boys under the age of 20, Jewish seniors over the age of 60, and then you include women, um, uh, you get to roughly 3 million. But friends, how many Jews are there in the world today? 13 million, 14 million, 15 million? Or go back to the pre-Holocaust numbers of 18 million? Um, uh, what do you mean? There were, there, there were 3 million, they said all the souls were at Har Sinai. So if all the Jewish souls were at Har Sinai, three million, um, how do we have 18 million Jews just prior to the Holocaust? Whatever. And of course, there we see the idea of the fragmentation of souls, um, that within us there are multiple sparks, but also fractured sparks. We see the idea of reincarnation emerging also uh, through such ideas. And the idea there that all souls existed primordially um, yes, is it, it, within the primordial self, and then when 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 the, the scattering the, the, the scattering of sparks again once again tikkun olam in the kabbalistic sense is the regathering of sparks is not only the cosmic oneness of God but also the cosmic oneness of 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 of, of all of life, and so with that shattering of the vessels. We see everything becomes broken and fragmented. God becomes fragmented. In the Alenu, when we pray for the unity of God, that's not to say that God is not one. It's to say that these sparks need to be reunited of the human souls of godliness in the world. And thus, that also has to do with that reincarnation aspect there. So that's a fascinating point, Lauren. And, um, and I think this is a great, for meditators here, it's a great meditation to tap into uh, around trying to tap into that channel of the oneness of humanity into that sense of the oneness of life through the Adam Kadmon, through that primordial uh, manifestation of divinity through the flesh. Okay, yeah, Cheryl. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> I just had a brief comment about light and dark and for people who have the challenge of blindness mm. and the, a lot of people don't regard themselves as being disabled at all. They see they see the light, they're in total darkness, but they, they might see the light in a different way. They see they're much more attuned. Um, other people, the other senses are much more attuned. So, so being in the dark is not necessarily all bad. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's something that, you know, you, you fine tune things just like being in the time of COVID hasn't been all bad because we have d discovered these opportunities for other kinds of reinforcements to our to our our minds and our souls and our hearts and gathering you know getting together. So I, I just think that someone who might be blind might take take issue with um, the light and the dark. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Cheryl. And I think it's a fascinating point. Um, 
I just interviewed a, um, a blind rabbi who, uh, who is blind, and uh, and she talked a lot about her experiences, how she studies Jewish texts with Braille, and how she accessed Jewish wisdom in different ways. And I think we have a lot to learn from that population. I, I was outraged and, and fought hard when the 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 chief um, the, the chief rabbi of the Western Wall, with which I have uh, um, a lot of beef with in general and on some other issues as well, I just say, as a supporter of Women of the Wall and, and some other uh, movements over there, when they banned uh, uh, service dogs, thankfully, um, uh, you know, and there's no reason to have done that, banned service dogs at the wall uh, for people who need that. Um, in any case, yeah, your, your point is really interesting and, and, to, and, and it, it would be a great question to ask. I've never asked this for a person who, um, I don't know, how do you say it? I, I know we don't like to say blind person, you say a person who experiences blind, blindness. You know, uh, what's, the, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the PC way today to describe a person who uh, has- the I don't know, but I, I mean, then there's two different, there, there really are two different, I mean, if you think of someone, let's say take Helen Keller, who I just yeah. read her name yesterday in yeah. something I was reading, but I mean, she was born born that way. And that, you know, impaired, oh, you know, yeah. with a visual impairment, as opposed to someone who has seen the stars and then the stars, yeah. then the lights go out. Right. I mean, Great. there's a difference there too. Oh, big time, big time. I, yeah, I love that. And, and I'll give one other difference that, yeah. So yes, yeah, so one who has seen it and remembers, and then, and then the question of someone who has never seen anything with their, with their eyes, um, and yet how they see light and darkness in some other sense, how they understand this conception they're experiencing. And then the other category would be um, someone who is medically or legally blind, um, but does experience uh, uh, sensations uh, through the eyes. Um, that is to say someone who would not be allowed to drive a car because they can't see properly to drive a car. And yet they do, um, uh, they do, you know, it's like, for example, when I'm closing my eyes right now, I can still see light. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I mm -hmm. see like a red, I see a redness there. If you try that for yourself, I can still see red, um, red there. Um, you can experience light even when your eyes are closed. Uh, tell me if your experience is similar. Uh, something else I want to share here around people who might be offended. Uh, and and I'll, I'll qualify this by saying uh, others in the room disagreed with her. But once I was critiqued by a, uh, a, a Jewish woman of color saying that, that our notions of spirituality are racist, she said. That we talk about light as being beautiful and that's light and dark being uh, a problem and that's blackness. And she said, I was giving an anti-blackness spirituality. Now to be sure, all the other people of color in the room said they disagreed and they found spiritual meaning in the idea of light and dark and they didn't see that as a racially oriented idea and said in black culture they talked about it the same way but i did just want to share her perspective that she felt that i was that i was saying something racist when talking about spiritual light um over there but anyways cheryl thanks for that blindness and that's very valuable yeah carol i have a friend who's currently going through some a very dark period in her life Lot, lots of sauruses <laughs> uh Tsurim, i guess uh and uh and i can't get her to see the light in, in there. I can't, I, I, I want to help her so much. I help her physically, but I can't help her mentally. She's sinking. And, Carol, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please keep going. No, it's just, I, I need yes. help in trying to give her to see the light. I, I've tried all, all kinds of ways. Steve, are you able to hear me? Are you able to unmute yourself, Steve? He might not be able to unmute himself. Let's see if Steve's able. Yes, Steve, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Steve, are you willing to share when you sit with people who um, who have trouble seeing the light, um, how you have found um, you're able to be supportive? You can't hear Steve yet. There he is, there he is. I have never ever thought of that question because I think my proximity is what encourages them and basically to me it is is listening encouraging the other person to talk and, and just listening and saying their name and uh, being there each of the people that I sit with has more physical maladies than uh, emotional 
problems. And so my, my experience is probably different than yours. And I'm not sure if, if I can give you any suggestions because of the difference in, in the people that I tend to. Steve, thank you so much for that. And, I, and um, I, you said exactly what I was going to say. And after I, I just amplified that, I want to hear if others have other suggestions on Carol's really important question. Because literally, Carol, I, I get this question probably once a week. And people who are, are supporting someone who is suicidal, they are supporting someone who is struggling with depression, they are supporting someone who is uh, very aged um, and uh, losing a sense of worth uh, because of their lack of uh, abilities or impact in broader society. Um, and people don't know how to support them. And I think Steve's wisdom there to me, and I want to hear from others after this, is to me um, what seems the most right. There is no answer to give. There is no piece of wisdom to share. There is no fortune cookie. It is about having the, the patience to sit with people and be present with them and have them feel seen and have them feel loved by listening. And as Steve said so brilliantly in particular, normally I would say the power of touch where touch is appropriate and safe. Um, and what Steve said very specifically, saying their name, saying someone's name is very powerful. In fact, when someone is um, uh, uh, blind, but even in a blind in a state of a different sense of un uh, unconsciousness, the most powerful thing we could say to someone who's dying is their name. Uh, this is something very important to, re to remember when you're sitting with someone who's dying is to as frequently as possible use the name of what you call them. Um, uh, and if, if they're not, if they're not someone you knew, then just to state their name to them over and over. Um, it's the most powerful thing that someone can, that, that empirically we know that, that, that the, 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 the eye, the eye flutters, what you call it, an eye flutter? And the eye flutters, uh, that the, the, the frequency of eye flutters uh, increases tremendously uh, um, uh, with, with the repetition of one's name more than anything else that can be said. Um, and so, and so, yes, uh, go ahead, Eileen. I have a girlfriend who is in a similar situation. And because I'm 1800 miles away from her, what I have found in COVID, at least, I send her little note cards. How many people get, I'm thinking of you, physical cards nowadays. <laughs> So every time I do this and I'm doing it actually with a whole group of my friends, I get back these little emails saying, thank you, I really appreciated it. And I mean, truthfully, it's very easy and very inexpensive. If Alice were here with me, I know her circumstances and it's very difficult. I would just be there to listen for her. And I think that's probably the most important thing we can do is listen non-judgmentally. Amazing. Yeah, Eileen, thank you so much for that. That's very powerful. One more thought before Andrea, um, which is, um, uh, you know, something that I think we should be careful not to do, which might seem intuitive to do, is um, is, uh, is to be w careful with toxic positivity. We talk a lot about toxic negativity um, and people who just are pouring negative energy all over us. Um, but the type of talk, of course, positivity is a wonderful positive thing, but the type of to toxic positivity that does, is not really connected in listening or in empathy, but is just kind of trying to make everything good that does, in a way that doesn't resonate with someone who is not experiencing it that way. Um, and so uh, one other practical uh, point uh, beyond the most important points of this non-judgmental listening and this and that are just, um, are just little practical things we can do, which we all know, but can be a reminder. Little touches, like we can't always just sit with uh, someone like Steve and maybe others of you here are, who are do giving people so much time. We can't always do that for various reasons, sometimes because of proximity, sometimes because of 
demands on our time or because of the number of people we're committed to or whatever the case is. Um, but sometimes little touches also matter. You know, a little daily note or weekly note, um, uh, little touches uh, that have someone feel seen or remembered. Also, make, having not just being of service to someone, but helping them be of service. Oftentimes, when one is losing hope or feeling worthless um, or valueless, it's that they don't feel like they are of service. Helping to enable someone to help you, right? Giving someone a way uh, to, um, uh, to do something meaningful. You know, something we say, and I know it, 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 uh, people don't believe me when I tell them this, um, so oftentimes, but something we say, those of us who have to do fundraising work, uh, which sounds like a joke, but in some ways really is real, is remember that when you're asking someone to support important charitable work, that you're giving them a gift by asking them. Because people do want to be kept connected to something really deep and true and good and meaningful. And by giving them an avenue to donate to that work, you're giving them a gift of that connection. Now, I'm like, oh, come on, really? I'm asking them for a hundred bucks, right? I'm asking them for a thousand dollars. Am I giving, really giving them a gift? Like asking them to get, but the truth is like, people do want the opportunity to be connected to that, to that kind of stuff. And so asking someone to be uh, how, how they can serve. Yes, Andrea. Yeah, another great discussion. Uh, thanks for that, Eileen. You know, I just got a note too from somebody and receiving a handwritten note a personal is just so precious these days. We're so tuned into the email. But about being with somebody, um, sometimes it's work, sometimes it doesn't. I was um, blessed to be able to be with a friend of mine, my best friend that died in October, and then recently with a friend who's also going out. But sometimes if you have that kind of relationship with the person, being able just to stroke their head, you know, like you would comfort a child, if you can touch or the hand, asking them first, and when somebody, when my friend Sue was going out, she was, you know, not present, but present. But there's something that's so precious and wonderful about that. And it's also very calming, particularly when somebody is transitioning, there's an agitation that happens. And the other thing for my other friend now, who is really in bad shape, but comes in and out of it, bringing soup. <laughs> She's a vegetarian. I brought her leek and potato soup, a little bit, the chicken soup, you know, just a little bit of something to share in that way. Um, it's, it's really true medicine. A little, my friend Sue that died in the hospital, I was there with her and we weren't doing Tahara. You know, we've been doing these virtual Taharas and I knew that that would happen. So the hospital staff worked with me. I just did, I did a Tahara in her body by myself alone because that was the circumstance. It was this incredible opportunity that would happen once in a million years. And then they came and took her body away. But I was also taking notes. This is another great discussion. Um, so, you know, in, um, when the, um, you know, the Melakota laid out, and I, I went back and looked at the Gemara, it's always, it talks about extinguishing and kindling. So they, they go together, right? We can't tell, we're talking about darkness, we want to talk about the light. We're talking about light, we're talking about the darkness, they're paired. And I was just thinking that, um, and it's interesting how the darkness of the plague and being in it, what comes up, how can we kindle? How can we, you know, um, uh, how can we achieve some spiritual comfort? So in the Mishkan, we're talking about kindling sacred lights, right? The reason why the lights were kindled was not only for the sacrifice, but obvious for illumination. So there's something about kindling light to illuminate to achieve some transcendence yet. And, and human, we need fire. Humans are the only animals that we need fire, right? But the darkness, yeah, that was wonderful in the beginning, the closer then we're in the darkness. You know, when I moved back to the country, I can see the stars at night that I didn't get in the city. But there is that primeval fear. We're wired to want to be around the fire because there are animals out in the darkness. The, the night terrors the kids have are really real. We should be afraid of the dark. We're wired to be afraid of the dark. So this is an interesting discussion of where we can find spiritual comfort in the darkness and where and why we need the light. We need to be able to kindle our Shabbos lights. You know, mm -hmm. we need that. So it's, um, there's just a lot here. Thanks, yeah. I appreciate it. Beautiful, beautiful. And thankfully, as you pointed out, because next week is Ma'avir, um, igniting, 
we will be able to continue this given how much there is. Uh, and I won't comment on your last point. I think it's, you said it so beautifully. But on that point, it is interesting that some of the pairs in the malachot um, are, uh, go together so clearly and cleanly, like we talked about writing and erasing. You, and you erase in order to rewrite. These, th these two, this pair is a little different in that you don't extinguish in order to light. I mean, why would you extinguish in order to light? It doesn't make a lot of sense. You extinguish in the malacha in order to get the charcoal. Um, it's not in order to light. So, so it is kind of interesting. Well, how is this a constructive destruction? Because if you remember, it's only a malacha. If 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 you're doing something destructive in order to, uh, um, if you're doing the work in order to, that it's in some ways constructive. Um, so yeah, so we will move to Ma'avir next week. And it is interesting to think about that relationship more and more. To go to your first point around touch, and of course, there's such a diversity around how we experience touch, each of us very differently in different ways. Even just last night, I wasn't feeling so 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 great. I was tired and and two, and, and two of my kids, th three of them actually, started uh, rubbing my back. Uh, in, uh, in my, they were rubbing my skin on my back and in a way that they don't normally do, but I was kind of leaned over, so they kind of got back there. And each of them was doing it differently, and they asked which one I liked the most, because everything's a competition, right? And one was padding, <laughs> one was padding, and one was scratching, and one was tickling. And they're like, which one do you like? And I'm like, oh, geez, this is one of those moments that are going to remember the whole lives. Which one did I love more? And I'm like, well, I like the padding for this reason, and I like the scratching for this reason, and I like the tickling for this reason. And, I, and they always get mad. I say, no, pick one, pick one. I know I love them all. They're all great. You know? <laughs> uh, but the truth is, it was, the, I was this, it was the scratching sensation that was uh, I was enjoying the most. <laughs> um, but yeah, so touch is touch is really profound. And you know, it's funny when I when I go, when I walk into the house to see my dog, he's so overstimulated by me returning home that I can't pet him for the first two minutes because he'll pee all over the floor. He, 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 he needs like the stimulation of me being home and then he needs the stimulation of me petting him. And I can't do those two at the same time. It's overwhelming. Or one of my colleagues who works in prisons, he, he oh, this is so, uh, this is so sad. He, uh, he, uh, he was recently, he makes, uh, he makes documentaries of people on, uh, on death row in order to, uh, a, 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 to be a legal documentary to make a case for them. And uh, he, he uh, approached this fellow who had, had, had spent a lot of the previous 20 years in solitary confinement. And, um, he, sh and he shook his hand. Um, and, the guy, and the guy said, please don't touch me anymore. That shaking the hand was enough. He said, because if you hug me or do anything more than that handshake, I think I'll pass out. I I'm so overwhelmed by your handshake. He said, no one has touched me in, uh, in, like in a, in a cordial way in, uh, in, in 20 years. Um, and uh, if you think about that, the power of touch, it's, just, it's, uh, it's, so, it's so profound. And so it's absolutely right what Andrew was saying there about stroking someone's hair or being present with them, of course, in ways that are appropriate and meaningful for them. Uh, but this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is very powerful. I mean, imagine sitting with, a, sitting with someone who's in hospice to be able to wash their hair or tickle their arm or things like this. Uh, uh, is very, very powerful. In any case, um, uh, yeah, so we have about five minutes left here. Let's hear from, let's hear from someone else on anything. If I can, um, if I can just answer, um, probably, sorry, allergies. If um, I can just answer Carol in a professional way and from experience. So even if you're clinically depressed because it's been a lot of bad experiences, Clinical depression is like, it's been called the black dogs, the black fog. You, you, you can't get yourself out of it. You can't think reasonably. You can hear it. You can't process it. And really there's a lot to be said for antidepressants. Um, I wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't at, for antidepressants. And I've had patients who, elderly patients who we thought would have to go to a nursing home and after a trial and being on the right antidepressant, it takes a while, they were able to go home, look after themselves. So it may be something you <clears throat> could suggest for your friend to go to a doctor, psychiatrist for it. Makes a big difference. Thank you, Lauren, for that reminder. Yeah, in addition to anything we can do, 
therapy and meds um, are often very much uh, very much needed in, in states like that. Thank you. Okay, uh, time for one more, maybe. Joe. Yeah. Somebody else want to jump in? Could you come here? Don't be shy. Rabbi Biller, Eric, Francine, Matthew. Oh, yes. Hi, Jose. Jose, go ahead. Jose, can you hear me? Oh, I think you might have frozen. Okay. Jose, uh, I think you're still on mute. Oh, there you are. Okay. Hey. I just wanted to make a comment. Uh, coming back to those uh, individuals that are suffering with blindness. And after I saw the comment from Matthew, on the chat, and if you haven't seen it, he's talking about someone legally blind being able to do things. But that reminded me that at one point, I had an administrative assistant who is legally blind. He was absolutely superb. But I remember um, his commenting many a time, saying, good to see you. So I had to have a conversation with him. How could he say, good to see you? And he explained to me, you know, the, sen the senses that they have, that he, uh, you know, they could perceive uh, individuals in a just special way. And that really left with an impression of me. And then I saw him many years later on the streets of San Francisco, I was walking behind him and he said, good to see you, Jose. And it just amazes me about the senses that they have. Very interesting, Jose, thank you so much. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Very nice. Friends, thank you for joining today. I think that um, what we're dealing with here of extinguishing is very profound, and it makes sense why we moved into the direction we did around those who a light has been extinguished for them, and they don't exactly know how to reignite or how to relight. And uh, this is, of course, uh, very, very complicated and very individual specific, and yet so many of you have shared so much wisdom on how we can do that for others and how we can do that for ourselves. And in fact, friends, as we're moving towards Pesach, this is one of the themes there as well. You have a people who, I wanna remind us, never cried out. They never cried out for liberation. They didn't know how to do that. All they cried out in the text was how hard it was, right? It's almost like the light had been extinguished of the Israelites of what their past was like, of who they even were. And now they lived in the darkness of slavery and of, of lack of identity and of value and of any future, that, that, right? There was no light at the end of the tunnel for them. All they could do was cry how, how hard it was, but they, didn't have, they had no vision or dreams left any longer. And, um, and how did that get ignited for them? If we think about that as we move towards Pesach, what happened for them that their path was once ignited towards having the courage to leave. I want to remind us, friends, the majority of the Israelites stayed in Egypt. The majority of them, the Midrash says, could still see no light at the end of the tunnel. They said, it's time to leave. And more than three quarters of them said, nope. The way we read the Haggadah, it sounds like, oh, good, let's go. Let's all go. Let's move on out. The majority of them said, no, I see no light at the end of the tunnel. I'm staying here as a slave in Egypt. I, I, I don't know where you're going, but I see no light over there towards freedom. I don't even know what freedom is. What are you talking about? Like, just put your head down, be a good listener and do the darn work. Stop trying to be a rabble rouser. And so they stayed. And again, I'm not critiquing them. Like I get why people would want to stay in the dark if that's all they know, you know? And those people who left had a different, but it's a, it's a huge minority of those who said, I'm going to leave. And then the number who said, we're going to walk through the sea. And then those who didn't complain to say, let's go back. Let's go back, come on, let's return, right? It's very scary to leave the dark. And so friends, I give you that bracha. I hope you'll give it back to me that 
whatever places we need to leave that dark space, we're gentle with ourselves because a lot of us can't leave. We, we find a comfort in the, in the dark at some point. Um, it's very scary to leave the dark. And yet areas where we can, that we continue to trek forward as the Israelites did through, through the paths out of Egypt, through the path to the sea, through the sea, through the 40 years of the desert, into an unforeign, into a foreign land where there was a whole new set of challenges. And that is our life journey as well, to continue to play the music in the dark. Have a wonderful day. Much love.